At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Yes, that's our very own Scott. You know, I love how he's using his gifts um, as ministry to those in need. Uh, great brother. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. As you're going there, some uh, exciting news. As you know, we talk about our church family being one church family in many communities. And, uh, you know, this started since back in 2005 when we merged with Redeemer, uh, when Redeemer Baptist Church of Warren merged with us to continue just expanding our gospel influence and their gospel influence. And since then, now we've grown to 14 different churches right throughout Southeast Asia. You know, some of them through mergers, some of them through church plants. But, um, um, but the goal here has been to, to continue lighthouses open. And so from uh, different times, we get churches that uh, bring us requests uh, to explore whether it would make sense for, for them to become a part of the Woodside family. And so, and so we had one such request uh, over a year ago from Legacy Church uh, downriver. Uh, they've been serving the Riverview community since 1963. And so we've been exploring over the last year, uh, praying about uh, how this could work was this what the Lord was doing and after much deliberation and prayerful consideration the board of elders at Woodside uh, voted to approve you know that Legacy Church merge with Woodside and so we're going to be taking that vote as a congregation on May 16th next week you'll receive information uh, FAQs and just other things so that you know so we can be prepared as we together uh, vote for uh, for this but it's just a wonderful uh, it's going to be a wonderful opportunity to have a church that can be re-strengthened uh, downriver and just um, as a witness for the Lord. They're actually right across the street from the high school, which is wonderful. They're excited uh, to be reaching those families. So just be in prayer for them, for us. And uh, like I said, you'll get more information. Uh, there are some... Um, We've posted on the doors, uh, just our constitution uh, requires that we do this. So on the doors, as you go outside, you'll see a notice about the merger. Another one about some of the elders that we're going to be voting on as well on May 16th. 2 Corinthians 9, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, our King, we spend so much of our lives doing from a place of guilt or shame or fear or anger or reluctance. And it blesses nobody, not you, not those around us, not ourselves. So Father, we ask you to continue using this series to bring us to that beautiful place where everything we do grows out of gospel-soaked childlike joy joy. We know, Lord, that that's your desire for us, joy, joy in our God. So please come. Please continue to soften our hearts, to mold us, to put new dreams, new passions in us that are aligned with your will and with your purposes for this earth. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
God loves a cheerful giver, the word of the Lord. So we're coming to the end of our series overflow from him through us to all. And next week, we're gonna have a fantastic brother and preacher bringing the word of God to us, Steve Zarelli. Um, we are in for a treat. If you've read the acknowledgements in my new book, you know how I feel about him. Uh, he's gonna finish up this series for us. But, uh, but I'm so excited, I'm so happy and sad about this. I'm sad because the passage of scripture for next week is chock full of God's grace and goodness, super abounding for all of us. And I wanted to teach that to you, okay? But I am happy because Steve is a great friend and a great preacher and we're in for a treat. Now, I know that when we talk about giving, it's a topic that could be easily misunderstood. It's uncomfortable, right? So if you're new or newer to our church, it could potentially be harder for you to hear the text or to hear me and not reach some conclusions that would be inaccurate. This is a family talk. So if you're new to us, we're so glad that you've joined us. Just know that you're overhearing a family conversation. Because you see, for you to be able to hear scripture well on this topic of giving, as it relates to our church family, you need to know me as your pastor and how I've sought to build this church, emphasizing the gospel from first to last, albeit imperfectly. I shared the first week of the series that what's happened here as it relates to giving over the last five years, is just nothing short of amazing. Our giving has tripled, and I can't um, explain that in any way other than God's grace has been at work. I also know that perhaps a number of you have never known, you've never experienced what it means to give generously and with joy. So I'm excited for what God may have in store for you. I'm excited for what he's in store for me related to this very topic. Because I know he's not done with me. I don't want him to be done. I don't want to remain a Scrooge, right? So here's where we've been. Paul is doing something extremely bold. He's asking the Gentile Christians in Corinth to take up a collection to send it to the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. The people that they had never met most likely would never meet people some 800 miles away from them. Now, I know that being asked to give money for all kinds of causes is something that we're all used to in our modern day. But culturally for them, this was a big stretch, big stretch. Giving in the Greco-Roman world first century was done to show one's social status and personal virtue with the end goal being uh, to receive honor. So it was very self-interested and even pater paternalistic. Compassion had nothing to do with it. God had nothing to do with it. That's not what Paul's doing. What Paul is doing is he's asking the Christians to give out of their compassion. He's trying to birth in them compassion for their poor brothers and sisters because of the grace of God and the end goal being thanksgiving to God and greater unity among the Gentile and Jewish churches that all of that would overflow to God. This is so bold, this is so new. So how's he doing that? Well, as we've been learning, he does this by bringing up the example of the Macedonian Christians and how they gave from their extreme poverty, but with abundant, uh, an abundance of joy. He brings up the example of Jesus, who being rich became poor for us so that by his poverty, he might make us rich. 
He also reminded them of their own eagerness that they had had a number of months back uh, when they first heard about this offering. But since then, they had kind of cooled off in their enthusiasm. You know how that happens to us? We get excited about something and then we kind of drop, you know? Uh, usually at the beginning of the year, we're like, this year I'm going to be so disciplined. But then by the time March rolls around, we're like, ah, maybe not, you know? So we cool off, and that's kind of what's happened to them. Uh, the relationship between Paul and the church in Corinth had, uh, was strained of late, and that might have contributed to their just kind of lagging off and finishing collecting this offering. And so Paul tells them that he's going to send Titus who is a trusted, well-known brother by them, along with some other brothers, and they're going to come, they're going to help them finish doing this, and they're going to take the collection to Jerusalem. There was no Venmo, no PayPal, so they had to figure out how it was going to be handled honorably and safely, how it was going to get there. So that's where we've been as far as the plot of these two chapters. As far as the principles on giving, we've talked, and we talked last week about five of them, Five principles on giving that I would commend to you anytime you give, whether it's to your church or to another nonprofit or to your friend in need. So as you're getting ready to give, you want to consider these five. You want to consider the generosity of God in giving us the Christ, the generosity of Christ in becoming poor for us, the principle of proportion, how much has God blessed you, the principle of equity, how much do you have in uh, comparison to the need of your brother or sister, and finally, your own eager joy, your own joy in giving. Those five you wanna consider as you give. Well, today we're going to see that giving is more than money. It's ministry. It's ministry. And we're going to walk. I mean, that's what we saw Scott do on the video, using his gifts as ministry to those in need. Well, we're going to walk through the text, and then we will make some points of application. So 2 Corinthians 9, verse 1, Paul says, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Okay, Paul feels that he's in a bit of hot water here. You know how people say, um, well, it goes without saying, but then they go ahead and say the thing that goes without saying. That's kind of what Paul has been doing in these two chapters. Here he says, well, I know it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry of grace, but that's what he's been doing about it. He's been writing. So why did he consider it superfluous? Because he knows of their readiness. He knows of their zeal. He's mentioned it a few times already. He's even boasted about it to the Macedonians. And that actually was part of what God used to get the Macedonians excited to give for Jerusalem and actually to finish. They finished taking up this offering. In the meantime, though, the Corinthians got cold feet. So things were changing. It's kind of like if you have um, a movie director 
and she wants to, or a movie producer rather, and she wants to produce a movie. So she goes to Tom Hanks and says, Tom, I have a great role for you. Would you do it? And he considers it and he's like, yeah, I'm in. So Tom Hanks is in. So the producer takes that to Steven Spielberg and says, hey, Tom is in. Will you direct? And Spielberg's like, wow, Tom Hanks is in. Yeah, that sounds like a fun project. Yeah, I'm in. And so the producer is excited and brings that new development back to Tom to find out that Tom is having second thoughts about the role. That's kind of what happened with Corinth and Macedonia. First, the Macedonians were excited about this offering many months back. And so with their zeal and excitement, Paul goes to Macedonia and tells them, hey, the Corinthians are ready to be a part of this. And that got the Macedonians uh, excited about this to the point that they actually finished taking up the offering. But as as Paul circles back to the Corinthians, now they're having second thoughts. So, but at first they were zealous for it. That's why Paul says it's superfluous for him to write about this, their zeal. Here's why he did write about it, their lack of action. They were excited as we saw last week, but they haven't finished. And so he writes to them about this very thing. He says to them, hey, I told the Macedonians about your eagerness, your zeal. I even boasted about you. And then he says, so I'm sending the brothers so they'll help you finish this and so that my boasting was not in vain. You see, Paul was going, he was coming to Corinth. He's coming to Corinth and he's coming with a whole delegation, you know, with some brothers are coming with him. And when he gets there, he does not want to be humiliated. And he doesn't want the Corinthians to be humiliated about the, the, the boasting that he's been doing about their wanting to be a part of this. He wants the offering to be taken up before he gets there. Because he doesn't want the Macedonians to go, hey, Paul, what were you talking about? Uh, we're here with the Corinthians. They're not giving anything. There's no gift. They're... they're what, what was all that about? He doesn't want that. But it's not just that he doesn't want himself or the Corinthians to be humiliated. There's something deeper that he's after. And it's in verse five. Look at what he says in verse five. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So Paul knows that when he and the delegation from Macedonia arrives in Corinth, the Christians there are gonna feel pressure. I mean, think about it, right? He's coming, he's an apostle, he's coming with this delegation, they're bringing their gift because they're gonna take this to Jerusalem and they're there. He, he knows the Corinthians at that point are gonna feel pressure, pressure to give and he doesn't want that. He wants it as a willing gift. So he says to them, finish it. This is something you wanted to do. Just get it done so that it's willing, so that it's not an exaction, so that we're, it's not something that we've wrung out of you. What Paul is saying is we don't wanna twist your arm. We don't wanna twist your arm. Now we might say, well, Paul, it sounds an awful lot like you are twisting their arm, right? I mean, you're saying all this stuff about what the Macedonians did and about what the Corinthians did not do. You're sending this whole delegation to them. You yourself are coming. That sounds like a lot of pressure. You see, here's the question. What are we supposed to do when something really matters, but we don't wanna twist people's arm? What do you do? This is so important, by the way, when it comes to marriage, work relationships, ministry, just about, unless you're like dealing with your really young children, this applies to all kinds of interactions that we have as people where a command is insufficient because Paul is not wanting to command them. He wants them to be a, this to be a willing gift, something that comes from their heart. So what do you do? 
Do you just not say anything? No, that's not an answer. Not when, what you're, not when your cause is life or death. Not when your cause really matters, as, as, as is this offering uh, to Paul, not only for the benefit that it will be to the Jerusalem church, but also for the unity that is going to create between the Gentile and the Jewish churches. So this matters. So how do you do that? How do you do that and not twist someone's arm? And the answer is through appeal, through a request. And you hope to God that the relationship has the strength to to hold, to sustain, to bear the weight of the request. And you saturate that request with gospel goodness and gospel truth, but you stop short of a command because a command will not do. That's why Paul is saying, so that it's a willing gift. It's important that it be a willing gift, something that, that yes, you finish, but you finish it from your heart, not as an exaction. You see, you guys, this is so important. Paul is definitely applying pressure to them through the letter, through Titus and the others coming, through himself later on coming and all of that. But he's giving their hearts time to catch up to their request. So important. Listen, the only options are not for us to be made to do something that, we're not, that we don't want to do or for us to do whatever we want. Those are not the only two options. There's a better path. And it's the path of the gospel. And it's when we know whether it's something it's God's will or it's something that you feel like God is leading your family into husbands and you want to bring your wife and family along or it's something that in ministry we're wanting to bring you along. There's a better way. <clears throat> and it's we, we make the request and we appeal with gospel truth and we give the hard time to catch up, hard, the hard time to get there. Yes, this is a good thing. I am all in. He wants that for them. And he wants it before he gets there. And then he goes on in verse six. He's getting here to the climax of these two chapters. Verse six, he says, the point is this. So here's the point he's been leading up to. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And who also, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Okay. Paul here helps us understand something we don't about the nature of giving Giving because of God. The analogy is farming land. Agriculture was a big part of the Corinthian economy, so this would have been easy for them to grasp, but you don't have to be a farmer to grasp this principle. I mean, coming by a simpler principle would be hard, okay? So what's the principle? If you sow a few seeds, you're gonna reap a small harvest. If you sow many seeds, you're gonna get a big harvest. Simple enough, right? Well, except that when it comes to money and giving, we might as well be preschoolers because the math makes no sense to us at all. Here's how we do it, okay? Here's how we interpret this stuff with money. Here's how we go. We go, okay, if I take my money, my seeds, and I sow them with my investment bankers, and I do it shrewdly, I'm going to get a big harvest. If I sow to the stock market, man, and I just leave it there forever, things are going to explode. If I sow in a savings account that's really safe, I'm going to have a big return in time. It'll be there waiting for me. Or if I give, if I sow to savvy entrepreneurs, man, 
the potential is just limitless. That's how we've been taught to think about being wise with money. None of those uses of money I just mentioned has anything to do with what verse six says at all. So please don't miss this. This is so important. Here's what verse six is saying. When we take the money that God has given us and we scatter it by giving it away and we do it generously, aware that the needs around us are astronomical, God in turn brings a generous harvest to us. That's what verse six is saying. You see, listen, seeds, we know this. Seeds must hit land, soil, in order, order to grow into a harvest. We get that. But the land, the land on which the seeds of your money must hit, land that your, the seeds of your money must hit, for the harvest that grows out of it to be pleasing to God is not the bankers or investments or entrepreneurs, but it's hungry mouths, thirsty children, people, cities, and countries without the gospel. That's the land. That's where the seeds of our money must hit. Don't miss this. Because I don't want you to stand before God and every one of us will. And I don't want us to say, sorry, God, I wasted your money. I was never taught. Uh-uh. Now, please hear me well here. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for investments and entrepreneurship and the market and all of that. For sure, I have investments in the market that I'm hoping do well. It's just that that's not what verse six is saying. What verse six is saying is that, listen, that the size of God's harvest to you depends on the size of your giving. And do you know why God wants to give you a huge harvest? So you'll turn around and spread it abroad again. And then he'll give you more so you can turn around and spread it abroad again. That's it, until the end, you never stop. Don't believe me? Let's look at verse 11. Let's borrow from next week. Let's take some from Steve's stuff next week, you know? <laughs> Since I won't be here doing this. I mean, I will be here, but I won't be doing this. Okay, look at what verse 11 says. Don't miss this. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. You hear it? You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Who's doing the enriching? God. God enriches us in every way. And listen, the context is financial, financial giving, but it applies beyond that. It applies to everything we have. It applies to our gifts, to our time, to our knowledge, to our relational equity, all of that. So what Scott's doing on that video, right? Taking his gifts, how can I bless? How can I bless through these gifts? Awesome. That's what this is saying. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Let's do a little exercise. How would you finish verse 11? How would you finish it? You will be enriched in every way to what? Hmm. You will be enriched in every way to get a Lamborghini, to get a beach house, to get a cottage. You will be enriched in every way to have a higher net worth, a higher self-worth. What? Finish it. 
How would you finish that? Because this is so convicting, you guys. I've been wrecked by these two chapters. If we study these two chapters in scripture and we're not wrecked as citizens of the richest country in world history, then I failed. I failed you, I failed the word of God because this is so convicting. It just is, especially for us in the 21st century Western world. How would you finish it? Why do you want God to give you more? Why? Is it so you can be generous in every way? I mean, Paul goes on in verse seven and says, each one must give. Again, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about giving. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Here's the thing. At the end of the, the, end of the day, the choice remains yours. The choice remains yours. It's your choice. Money will part from us in many ways. There are many ways that money parts from us. Taxes, right? It's taken from you. Uh, guilt and pressure, right? A request comes, but your heart never catches up, so it's always, it always remains like a burden. Um, habit, just something you're used to doing, but it's kind of automatic at this point. You don't even think about it. Um, sorrow, you're resented. You know, you give, he's like, ah, you're resented. Listen, none of those ways is what God is after. That's just not what he's after. He does not want us to do it reluctantly. He does not want us to do it under compulsion. He doesn't want us to go, I'm giving you this, but I, I wish I didn't have to. That's not what he wants. There's one way to give, you guys. There's one way to give that honors who God is, who Christ is, the principle of proportion, the principle of equity, and it's this, joy, joy. That's it. That's the one way to give that honors all of that. All of the stuff that we've been learning, it's joy. It's joy. It's not the amount, it's joy. Verse seven says, God loves a cheerful giver. Have you ever wondered, what does God love? Who does God love? Here's one clear statement about what God loves. Who God, God loves a cheerful giver. You know, the Greek word for cheerful is hilarious, from where we get hilarious. You hear it? Hilarious, hilarious. That's the word. Just you're laughing. You're just so excited. You're giving. It's like, <laughs> you're just so happy to be able to give. It's what God loves. Someone who has not an ounce of reluctance. Man, I've done the opposite of this so often in my house. I'll be, I'll be eating something, okay? And I'll be really enjoying it. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, I know, you're talking about macarons. No, not just macarons, you know? I do love those, but no, it could be bacon or a cake or a croissant. I don't just eat macarons. I also eat healthy things. So, so I'll be eating and I'll be, you know, I'll be like zoned out. I mean, has this ever happened to you? I'm just like locked in, so happy. And then an intruder, like somebody will, will come in and ask me, I've also done it to others for sure, but an intruder will come in and ask me for a piece. And at first I'll go, uh, but then I say, sure. Has this ever happened to you? You know, you're just going like, hey, can I have like, ooh, uh, sure. But that pause, that initial reluctance is enough to spoil the gift. Because I'm going to say yes anyway. I'm going to give it.
But now I can't feel great about it because I was selfish. And the person that asked me can't feel great about it either because they saw their reluctance. Ah, you sure? Now here, take it back, right? I've spoiled it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know how we do this with all kinds of things? I know you felt this. A request comes your way from wherever it came, your spouse, your work, the church, it doesn't matter. And at first you're like, ah, sure. That's not a cheerful giver. That's not how God wants us to give. That's just not how he wants it to be. He wants us to be cheerful. He wants our hearts to be wide open and our mouths to have big smiles and our response to be, yes, yes, of course, of course. You want my shirt? Here, take two. That's what he wants. You see the difference? I mean, that's what Jesus said anyway in Luke 6. From the one who wants your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Right? Can you imagine how different that would be? If instead of, uh, sure, we said, Yes, what else? How different? Uh, sure, no. Yes, what else? How else can I bless you? Oh, you, you want this from me? Sure, I'll do that, but is there more I could do for you? Oh my goodness, can you just imagine how that would transform? How that would transform our marriages? You know, my wife asks, hey, could you rub my feet? Sure, do you want your hands also? I mean, like, I mean, and she'll tell you. I'm like, oh, really? Okay, you know, <laughs> reluctance, there's this reluctance, but imagine if we were different, you know, if we were just like, of course, what else? I'm ready. I'm here to serve you. I'm here. I've been enriched in every way by God to be generous in every way to you. Oh, so good, but so hard, right? So hard. Cause I'm like, wait, what? You want my bacon? Uh, get your own, get your own. That's what I want to say because I'm selfish, you know? Listen, God loves a cheerful giver. That's what he wants. That's why he's made us rich in Christ. So we'll be cheerful as we give. So pr please, you guys, pray. Pray until what you do, what you give grows out of gospel-soaked, childlike joy. That's where we want to get to. That's what God is after. He's just doing such a transformation within us by the power and love and grace of Christ that everything we do, small or big, is powered by joy. The difference that it'll make the church that we will be, you guys, amazing. So let me leave you with three points of application. First, commit to give. Commit to give. If these two chapters have not convinced you that the call of Christ in our lives moves us in the direction of generosity, I don't know what will. You see, like the poor Christians in Muslim, India, which we learned about last week, who take a handful of rice every time they make a meal and they store it so they can give it to gospel work. Decide. That from everything God has given you, the first portion you take out, the first portion you take out, is going to go to God's gospel work. Decide that. And if you've never done this, if giving has never been a part of your life, doing that is going to feel like the biggest thing ever. You're going to feel like, what in the world am I doing? What happened to me? But listen, as someone who's been doing this for 27 years, 
Believe me when I say to you, you can never outgive God. You can never outgive Him. Try. Someone was sharing with me last week. You know, she came up to her service. She's like, you know, when we were retiring, we had these, these funds, and we're like, ooh, what are we gonna do? But they're like, she was just saying, like, you know what? So we just we gave and we gave, and but it's almost like we couldn't keep, we couldn't give it fast enough, is what she was saying. Because like God just kept, just kept replenishing. You cannot give God. I remember, you know, I was 18 when I became a Christian and started giving. And as my income increased, so did my giving. And I remember at one point, like writing that check and being like, man, this, this right here is like a luxury car monthly payment. And it kind of hurt. It was like, ah. Oh. Then I thought, I don't want a luxury car. I want people to know Jesus. I really want people to know him. So if, if giving has never been a discipline, a part, a joy in your life, commit to give and never look back. Second, prepare to give. Commit to give, prepare to give. I've been hearing from some of you how this whole series has been just provoking some good reflection for you, how you're asking some good questions, how you're allowing the Lord to ask you some questions. And I know that when it comes to this topic, God has been sitting on this with me. And he's not done. I'm like, Lord, what are you saying? What, what are you asking? It's good. I want to be there. Kind of uncomfortable, honestly. And I know that a number of you have been reading that book, The Treasure Principle. And, uh, you know, I think we sold, sold them all, but you have, you know, Amazon, you can get it there. And, man, it's a good book. It's a good start. You know, if, 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 if you've never believed in, understood, or practiced giving... This little book will be gold for you. But maybe there's some of you who are ready for deeper surgery. You're ready for deeper surgery. You know, you, you've been a Christian for a while. Giving has been a part of your life for a while. You would even say you are generous. But you also know that, that God has more for you and that you definitely have more than you need. If that's you, I want to recommend another book to you. And it's called Rich Christians in an age of hunger. Rich Christians in an age of hunger. It will do surgery on your flesh. It just will. So I recommend that you read this book only if you're serious about your walk with Christ, if you're not afraid to look at the extreme poverty in the world and the nauseating affluence that surrounds us, and ready to fast and take action. You know, much of what I'm about to say comes from this book. There's a story that the author tells about a Christian that was doing work in a village in Liberia, Africa. And he talks about how the, the, this Christian found that about 90% of the people there uh, were illiterate and suffer from protein deficiency. And so he started these different programs to stimulate trade and education and agriculture. And um, uh, all the while, churches were being planted and thousands were coming to Christ Really great stuff. Um, but he talks about how agriculture is so key for them, and yet a majority of them only have a machete, a heavy knife. But what they need is a shovel, a pick, an axe, a water can, a water can, spraying equipment, but they can't afford it. They can't afford it. And so he started this microloan program. But here's what he says. 
as he's telling this story, he's, and again, he's talking to Western Christians. He says this, you and I buy tools like that on a whim for the garden in our backyards. But for these people, such purchases are completely out of reach, even though they need them to fight malnutrition. They're hungry, but can't buy a shovel. As I was reading this, I thought about how easy it is for us. If our fridge breaks down, we go get another. If we want another shirt, a new shirt, we go get it. And while we're at it, uh, let's get two or three. If we get a hankering for Chinese or Thai food or Italian or a burger, we just go get it. Not a second thought. But there are over two billion, over two billion people in the world that have neither the access nor the funds. If they just get rice, rice, they give thanks and live another day. And so prepare your heart to give. Let God do surgery on you. What's he saying to you? What's he saying? Let him speak and take action. Redefine joy. Redefine what brings you joy. Listen, joy doesn't have to be expensive. Did you know that? Joy does not have to be expensive. In fact, some of the most meaningful, most joyful, fullest moments in my life have cost nothing. Nothing. It's been with my wife or with my children or with dear friends or in connection with God. Just nothing. Just joy to the fullest. Redefine joy. Move toward simplicity. Move toward simplicity. You cannot spend day in, day out, year in, year out time with Jesus, with Jesus, and not, not be moved toward simplicity. It's impossible to do that. You're reading a different gospel if that's the direction you move. Simplicity, a simpler lifestyle. Because you guys, here's the thing. So often we're like, hey, listen, here's where I am with my income, with my living. But if God gives me more, sure, I'll consider giving more. Oh, can we stop that nonsense? Wherever God has us, do you know that if you start moving toward simplicity, so needing less, just one less Starbucks, one less shirt, one less whatever. Do you see what happens? Now there is surplus that you can start giving away. The author here gives some suggestions for how we can move to a simpler, toward a simpler lifestyle. He says, question your own lifestyle, not your neighbor's. That's a really good word. That's a really good word. Because, you know, hopefully as you've been hearing this series, you have been going, oh man, I hope Bill has been listening carefully because he needs this. I know he needs this, man. I'm, I'm gonna text him. He's like, hey, are you coming to church? Are you, are you here? It's like, no, no, no. Focus on you, you, your lifestyle. Not your neighbors, leave them alone. God has them. You focus on you. That's a good word. He says, reduce your food budget by setting a monthly budget and sticking to it. He says, determine how much of what you spend is for status. Ooh. How much of what you spend is for status and eliminate such spending. Listen, our status is with God. It's with God. Refuse to keep up with clothing fashions. 
He writes, very few readers of this book need to buy clothes, except maybe shoes, for two or three years. Imagine if we just decided, hey, I'm going to take all of that, whatever to spend the next three years on clothes, and just, just give it. Just give it so that someone can have clean water across the world. Or have the gospel. Enjoy what's free. So much fun when something's free, you know? It just tastes better. You know, someone gives you a donut, it's like, oh man, this is the best donut I've ever had. You know, it's just better. Enjoy what's free. Live on a welfare budget for a month. Yikes. We're so far from that, right? Set a finish line for yourself. Set a finish line for yourself. Listen, a lot of you are making or will make a lot of money throughout your career. But your income has nothing to do with your need. For some reason, we thought that our income and our need go together. No, your income is one thing. Your need is another. So set a limit. Set, set a finish line for yourself. So, you know, you know what? Beyond this, we just don't, after this, what, what are we doing? We don't need more. Otherwise, like in other parts of our life, our lifestyle will just keep expanding. And he says, give your children more love and time rather than more things. It's a good word. Give your children more love and more time rather than more things. And while we're talking about children, parents, listen. Be sure that you're training your children in generosity and in giving toward God's work. Be sure that you're training them in this. They need to see it. If you don't show it to them, they're not gonna know. You may even give, maybe you give a lot, but if you don't show it to them, if you don't train it into them, they're gonna have no idea what that is. There are a number of things that Anna and I have done through the years to try to train this into our children. You may have your own things. You know, at one point with Rain and Jet, when they were little, we gave them these three jars. You know, one was for, uh, for saving, one for giving, one for spending. And so every time they got a dollar or whatever, you know, we would tear the dollar up and no, we would like change it into coins. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so one coin would be for the one, you know, each of the jars would get one. And it was really great for them to see all three jars growing, but know that only the spending one was for them to spend on whatever, candy or toys or whatever. And it was even greater for them when the, when the giving jar got full for them to bring it and give it to the church. You know, it was a nightmare for the counters, but it was great for the children, you know? But we've done things like that. Um, I know that we all, or many of us potentially, you know, from our bank, maybe we use automatic bill pay. You know what I'm talking about? We just said your bills on automatic and it just happens, you know? Uh, and I love that feature because I hate writing checks. But one of the things that when it comes to giving to God that I've made, and Anna and I have made ourselves not do this, even though I hate writing checks, is that pre-COVID, when we still took an offering here, we would write a check so that we could bring it to church physically and give it to the kids so that the kids could put it in. And invariably, they would open it, their eyes would go really big, and then they would give it in but it was good training for them to see. I want them to know how much we give. I want them to know how constant it is because I want it to be a part of their lives. So it's not just something that once in a while, if we feel like it, we do know. This is a rhythm of who we are as the people of God. Since COVID, because we're not doing the offering here anymore, um, we're using the Woodside app. And so what we do is usually on the 
on the weeks when we're giving, usually on a Sunday, we pray around the dinner table, thank God for his provision to us, and then one of the kids will just enter the amount and send it through. But whatever you have to do, parents, so that giving is not invisible for your children, you need to make it tangible, you need to make it visible. Otherwise, we're gonna have a generation that grows up without experiencing in their blood the joy of giving. And we don't want that. If you've been sitting through this series and be like, man, no one ever really taught me about this, then please, for your kids, give them something different. It'll bless them. Finally, cheerfully give. Cheerfully give. You know, the kind of giver that God wants, as we've been saying, is one that gives cheerfully, one that's a generous one, one that's just so happy. We can think so small. You can think so small about all kinds of things, but definitely when it comes to giving. But should I tithe off of my gross income or my net income? Okay, you know, I've asked that question. But what if we ask different questions? What if we ask, hey, what would it look like for us to live on 10% of what we make and give away the other 90? What would that be like? Many of us can't do that, but why not even ask? Why not just ask, make it a matter of prayer and see what God does, see how close to that we get. Just see. You know, many of you have heard of John Wesley. John Wesley was a powerful evangelist of the 18th century. He's from Britain. Uh, he's a church planter. You know, he, um, the Methodist church comes from the movement that he started. Uh, but John Wesley, as he moved on through life and through his Christian life, his goal was to need less and give more. Great goal. Need less, give more. At one point in his life, the proceeds from his books were 1,400 pounds annually. 250 years ago, that was a lot of money. And so... But from that 1,400 pounds, he would keep 30, 30 pounds and give the rest away. And at one point he wrote this. He wrote, if I leave behind me 10 pounds, you and all mankind bear witness against me that I lived and died a thief and a robber. Now, we don't have to agree with all the particulars of that statement to affirm that Wesley was wrestling with Jesus' words in Matthew to store treasures for ourselves in heaven, not on earth. Listen to me, church. Every one of us will part with our money. Every one of us. Death leaves us no other choice. But it's one thing for death to take away your money and it's another thing for you to send it on ahead of you to heaven because you're sowing it into thirsty children, hungry mouths, people, cities, and countries without the gospel. What is God saying to you through this series? What's he saying? Grow from it. Take action. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what he's after. Joy, joy. Make it so that pray, read scripture, fast so that everything you do, everything you give grows from a gospel-soaked childlike joy. That's what God is after. Jesus became poor so that by his poverty, we might become rich with treasures that death can't take away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for your word. Father, as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper, Father, we give you thanks for our Lord Jesus, who by his life, death, and resurrection has given us new life, has made us your children. Thank you. Father, thank you for this word. It's difficult to hear these chapters of scripture, God. Difficult. It's difficult as citizens of this, the richest country in world history. To live here in this age of hunger. Hunger for so many. Help us, God. Help us. I pray, dear God, that, that we would simply have conviction from your spirit, not condemnation from the flesh, to begin reflecting, learning, asking questions, allowing you to ask us questions. Father, we thank you that our acceptance before you is not based on our selflessness or our generosity. We thank you that our acceptance before you stands solely on the merits of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all that he is for us in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, right now in his reigning glory. Thank you, O Lord, that we are hidden in Christ we're united to him. Thank you, Lord. I pray that as we reflect on the body, on the blood, you would fill us with joy. Oh, yes, joy. Let's take a few moments before we take the elements to reflect. Examine your heart before the Lord. take the bread the body of the Lord given for us let's take the cup the blood of the Lord shed for the forgiveness of sins Lord Jesus we love you Fill us with joy, joy in your presence. In your name we pray, amen. Let us rise and sing. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.